Week seven, if you can believe it. Talking about the church. Spurgeon used to say, what good is a brick if it's not a, not a part of a building? And he said, I'm tired of these, uh, he, before, before it was a popular phrase, I'm tired of these rolling stones, he said, that are never attached to a church. All right, let's talk about the organized church. Oh, a lot of people don't like the organ. I'm not into organized religion. I'm sure you've never heard that line from anyone. Uh, there are several that are against it. I don't know. I just started piecing back uh, in my mind the folks that don't like it. Uh, and I thought I'd call the first group here the spiritualizers, see, because their relationship with God is spiritual, this is internal, and so my relationship with God certainly doesn't need to be manifested in any way through some organized church, and I'm just not into the organized church, and I can relate to God anywhere, and I pray, and I can even read my Bible, and I don't need the church. Met a few of those folks, the spiritualizers. I find a lot of those people have no clue what they're talking about in terms of who God is. It's funny that they reject, as I said early on in this series, the church. They say they're religious. Uh, I'm sorry, they're spiritual, not religious. And what that means is that I want to have my own self-defined relationship with God. I don't want the church interfering with that or trying to tell me uh, what's right or wrong. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll try to counter that with those that are for it here in a second. Uh, then there are the, the mavericks, right? These people, uh, a lot of them are converted. They're real Christians. Uh, they, they just are, are unfortunate. How do I say it nicely? Arrogant? With, how does that work? Uh, prideful. They have this sense that they, uh, you know, can do this thing without anybody's help. And uh, these are the folks that start to even appoint themselves as, as a church. You know, and then they, whenever they meet anybody, they're having church. And of course, all the people I find that are the, the mavericks that don't like the organized church, they're always the pastor of their own little, uh, you know, small group of some kind. Uh, a lot of those out there, uh, they think that there's no one smart enough, no one good enough, no one capable enough to lead them spiritually. So they have to lead themselves. They don't need any intermediary uh, kind of uh, muddling up the waters for them because they just can't find a church that's good enough to be a part of, the Mavericks. Then there's the, uh, this is a new thing, you'll see more of it in the days to come, the home churchers, the home churchers. This uh, really began, and I, I called this years ago as something we would be uh, approaching before I ever saw a book written on it, uh, when, when we went to the, uh, when, when the homeschool movement started to ramp up. Uh, nothing wrong with homeschooling. That's fantastic. Homeschool all you want. But in that mindset, the extensions and application of that has reached into places in people's lives uh, where they begin to say, listen, if I'm teaching my kids, if I'm the pastor of my own little family here, uh, you know, I don't want anybody else teaching my family. Well, then it makes no sense for me uh, to then say it's okay for me to throw them in Sunday school or even to sit in a church and have them be taught by this person. It'd be better if I just tailored all of their spiritual uh, life and I'll be, I'll be the pastor of my own brood. You, know? you see this uh, increasingly popular. And when I remember thinking this is going to happen as a trend, uh, I couldn't find a single book written on it. Now there's several. I mean, you can go to Amazon and find all kinds of books that are written on bringing church home and returning church to the house. And they look at passages like Acts 2 and they say, well, look, they met from house to house. And, and what they <laughs> neglect in that context is they just come from meeting regularly on the Temple Mount under the Apostles' teaching. But uh, they, they, they like to cherry pick these verses. Uh, and there's a kind of undercurrent of protectionism and a sense in which they say, I, don't, I, I really can't trust anybody else to shepherd my own 
uh, my own family. Uh, they're, they're big on the priesthood of the believers, which we will look at, and there's something very valid about that in the New Testament that we need to understand, but they've taken it and applied it uh, in, in what is a clearly an unbiblical way by dismissing the organized church. And I think often you can just move through that list uh, in, in at least the categories, and I'm just throwing these out artificially from my experience, but you, you move from a lot of people in the first category that have no clue even what the gospel is. They're not converted. They like to talk about their relationship with God. Then you find in the next camp, I mean, it's half and half there. I mean, you find a lot of people that are converted, and then you find in that last group people that you start to admire as being super pious. Uh, but all of them, uh, regardless of how sincere they may be or how biblically astute they may be, when you dismiss the organized church, you're going against a pretty hardy resume of people that are for it. So let's talk about who's for it. How about Jesus Christ? <laughs> uh, well, if you, that should be the end of the argument. But let's just let's look up a couple of passages here and just think these things through. Okay, turn to Matthew 23. Once you write that down, as though it's a surprise that Jesus is for the organized church. Uh, Let's look at a passage like this. Now, again, this is by extension. Uh, Here you've got Jesus talking to people in the old dispensation, if you will, under the Old Testament rules, uh, teaching his disciples and all the crowds who went to synagogue every Saturday and sat under their local teachers and rabbis. And, uh, and, and, And here's what he says when he talks about the organized synagogue, if you will. Uh, just to get a principle in our minds about how Jesus thought. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now in the synagogue, they had a place where they taught, uh, which is a neat idea to preach sitting down. I should think that one through a little bit. But anyway, they had a place where they would read the Torah and they would, ex- they would ex- expound on the Torah in the seat, what they called the seat of Moses. As they read the law, they would sit there. He said this, Verse 3, leave those churches because I'm about to give you a whole chapter of how terrible those guys are. Leave and don't look back. Have church at home, right? No, that's not what he says. He says, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. Okay? He's about to give an entire chapter of the problems with the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. But he's not giving up on the organization, that is, until the coming and the establishment of the church and the beginning of the church age in Acts chapter 2. But what he's saying here, he's giving us a principle at least of, listen, you've got a lot of reasons you may not want to go to the organized church. Under the old dispensation, Jesus was still encouraging people to go and to listen and to take notes and do what they say. But listen, there's a real corruption in the synagogue of the first century, and don't do what they do because they are hypocrites. They preach, but they don't practice, right? They don't practice what they preach. I mean, there's a principle that's interesting. Now, turn back to, Ma- to Matthew 16, Matthew chapter 16. He says in Matthew 16, we've looked at this passage a couple of times. We may look at it a few more times before we're done with this series, but he says in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, if you've got keys, you've, you've got authority, right? That's the picture here. You've got the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, we don't have time to, to follow this all the way through, but we looked at that section on church discipline, how the binding and loosing terminology shows up again in Corinth, and Paul then encourages them to practice church discipline, And even the handing over of people to Satan as they kick them out of the church and judge those within the church, Jesus was the one who set that up and gave them that terminology. 
the idea of an organized structure with the delegated authority of leaders making decisions and exercising delegated authority over the lives of people that are there, so much so that they can legislate, if you will, and bind and loose in the church. Not to mention, and I didn't put this one down, I ran out of room on this line, but you might want to jot down Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, which we've already looked at. When we talked about spiritual gifts just recently, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, talked about the fact that Christ is the one who descended and the one who ascended far beyond the heavens that he might fill all things. And then he gave some as apostles and prophets, evangelists and shepherds and teachers. So here's the deal. He's now gifting the church, these people, so that the saints can be equipped. That's usually my one-liner for people when they say, I'm not into the organized church. I'm saying, well, Jesus set it up. He's even in every generation giving the leaders to the church so that they can equip you and you're looking at a gift of Christ and turning away from it. Not to mention that he was the one who established the organization. Jesus Christ is for the organized church. That was certainly part and parcel of his ministry to set up the church, to give authority to leaders, to then gift every generation with evangelists, church planters, and pastor teachers. That's what he actively does. And the people that sleep in on Sunday or cruise by the church on the weekend as they run off to to the mountains to, to their cabin and they have no interest in the church but they claim Christ, have a fish on the back of their SUV and say, I'm a good Christian but I don't involve myself in the organized church. Right? Think of how arrogant that is when Christ is sitting here saying, I've established this, I've organized it, I've given leadership authority to leaders and I'm Every generation gifting the church with leaders so that people can be taught, equipped to do the work of the ministry. And you're saying, nah, no thanks. I don't want any of that. Not to mention the apostles were all for it, obviously. The apostles were for the organized church. Take a look at a couple of passages here with me, if you would. We won't take time to turn to 1 Corinthians 5 because we read that last week. But let's at least look at uh, Acts chapter 14. I want you to jot that down. Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. The apostles, which by the way, because of that generation, as we looked at last time, this foundational group, we can say when the apostles, when they are for something, when they are showing their support for something, they are the apostolos. They are the sent ones, the delegated authority of Christ on earth in that first century, speaking for Christ in a way that even today, pastor teachers can't speak for Christ. They were showing their authority without a written Bible with miraculous signs and wonders, right? Not on every turn, not every weekend, but I mean, you saw these examples of the imprimatur of God on the apostles when they support something in the book of Acts, for instance. I mean, if this is what they're all about, you you just can't, you can't ignore that and say, well, that's good for, you know, Peter, James, and John. It's just not good for me. These are the apostles of Christ. Verse 21 When they had preached the gospel to that city, they made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. They strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, they're working, doing the job of preaching to them, encouraging, uh, exhorting them. It says, and when, verse 23, they had appointed elders for them in every church, every single church needed leaders. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Here's the thing. He didn't just say, I'm going to set this up. I'm going to preach the gospel to you. I'm going to encourage and exhort you, set up an organization and leave you. Here's this thing he does. He gives organizational structure, leadership structure to that group by saying, every single church has got to have leaders. I'm going to appoint them, the best qualified here, and now we've got some structure to this, right? I mean, it doesn't necessitate 
the buildings and the campuses and everything that we have in a modern church, but certainly shows us that the apostles were into setting up structure. Uh, no more clear of a way to establish this than by looking at church discipline. And that's why I added 1 Corinthians 5.21, which is in the middle of a paragraph about judging those within the church. The church has been assigned that. Even back in Matthew 16, you are to go and tell it to the church and then treat them in a certain way when the adjudication of how that sinner is in terms of his unrepentantness and the problem of his sin and, 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 and diagnosing all of that. When the church has that kind of authority over the lives of people in the church, clearly this is a set of apostles that are making their, uh, their, their, their opinion, their authoritative, inspired opinion known that the church is to be structured and organized and that's the way the whole book of Acts plays itself out and all the letters that are sent back to them. Let's add the third person of the Holy Trinity here, the Holy Spirit himself. Now, we're not going to read the entire first and second book of Timothy and Titus, but if you know your New Testament, you know these are what we call the pastoral epistles. They are three inspired books, one written to Timothy in Ephesus, pastor of a large church there, and Titus, who is pastoring in Crete and setting up churches in various cities on the island of Crete. And it was all the instructions about how to do the very thing that we just read about in Acts 14. How do you set up leadership? How is the church to be structured? What are the priorities? We look, for instance, when we dealt with the issue of the poor, right? If you're going to set up a ministry to widows, it better be like this. Here's the criteria. Teach these things with all authority. Don't let anybody disregard you. This is how it works. This is what you teach. This is what you do. Here's what the rules ought to be. Here's your priorities. Here's how you treat and compensate leaders in the church. All of that given in the pastoral epistles. The Holy Spirit, writing the New Testament here, that's where I get to the Holy Spirit, is giving instructions for all time to the entire church age about how the church ought to be structured. That's a wasted set of books if either the mavericks, home churchers, or the spiritualizers are right. But they're not. They're wrong. We need to uh, be very careful to value the things that God values and to heed the things that he has set up and not disregard them. The organized church, I know people say, yeah, uh, I'm not into that, I'm into Christ. We need to recognize Christ himself, the apostles, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we could go on and make a much longer list or all advocates of the church being organized and structured under leaders in assemblies in geographic locations around the world. Let's talk about the self-organized church for just a second. Okay, all for the organized church. Well, let's go back to our thoughts, for instance, of the trend from homeschooling, which I'm not condemning, but to, to the home church movement, which I do condemn. Uh, if it's the kind of home church that we're talking about where we exclude the pattern of the New Testament for the church and adopt our own, well, that person may say, well, listen, I'm into this as, as, as being the kind of the shepherd of my own you know, flock here in my family. What if I extend that to a couple of neighbors and we'll just start our own church? That's what I call here the self-organized church, okay? To, to respond to that, which is also a trend and it's usually led by the Mavericks, uh, we need to look at what the scripture says about the establishment of, of those churches that he organizes. Uh, let's talk about this. Number one, uh, the establishment of churches, right? Begin with the commissioning of these churches, now, I can't really tease these two things out, leaders and the commissioning of the, of the organization itself, because they go hand in hand. But what you'll find here in the New Testament is that when the churches, I should say this, when the converts are, 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 are repentant and put their trust in Christ, they are assembled now and commissioned by leaders, right? Not self-appointed people, but leaders from top down appointing and commissioning the assemblies as churches of Christ. 
Now, this can't be cleanly traced throughout the entire New Testament, but we can at least look at examples of this. I shouldn't say the entire New Testament. We can trace this cleanly through the New Testament, but we cannot trace this cleanly through all of church history. I understand that. But let's look at the principles, at least, from Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Verse 2, for instance. They were worshiping the Lord and they were fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them to do. And again, it's inextricably bound, the appointing of leaders and the commissioning of churches. But here we go. Verse 3. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. I mean, here was the power. This prompting of the Spirit, whether it was audible in this miraculous era or whether it was uh, inaudible, the point was this was a commissioning through the assembled church being empow- empowering these leaders to where that when the, the churches were established and these people were sent to do God's work, it was seen as though the Holy Spirit himself w- was doing this. And they were sent down uh, uh, to Seleucia. They set sail to Cyprus. They arrived uh, at Samalus. They, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, uh, and, and they had John, John Mark, to assist them. Okay? That's the beginning of a church planting thing. We call it a missionary journey. It starts with the commissioning of the missionaries, the assembled church now deciding to, by the prompting of the Spirit, to establish other churches. That's the pattern. We already looked at, at, at uh, Acts 14, but it's just across the page there. So let's look at it afresh and get a little bit more of the context of that in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, they had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They strengthened the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I guess we read all this, did we not? And then they had, then they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. They committed in the Lord in whom they believed. Here was this sense of the establishment of the church, the provision of leaders done from existing churches and existing leaders, people that had been sent out to do this work. We could trace this pattern in the pastoral epistles, in, in Titus's ministry especially, as he goes from town to town and city to city to, asap, to establish and commission these churches. Churches are commissioned by other churches. Uh, they don't pop up as self-appointed um, uh, works, ordained leaders. Okay? And, and by saying these things, by the way, I understand there are huge shifts in church history uh, that we see. For instance, like in the Reformation, Or you could say, okay, I can see some pretty clean lines, even though there was uh, the schism of the church and a lot of division through time, where churches established churches. But at some point, when the church is so corrupt, doesn't the church uh, kind of have to establish and appoint itself and appoint its own leaders, right? You can make that case, but what you do need to know, if you study the Reformation, for instance, which is the most glaring and obvious break with the established church and the starting of churches, what you find is a real concern during the Reformation period for them to work to reform the church, that's why they call it the Reformation, instead of just abandoning the church and creating some ecclesiastical revolution. That wasn't the heart of the Reformation. The heart of the Reformation was to fix the church, reform the church from within. But at times I recognize, particularly during that explosive time with the printing press and all the other things that were happening, we had a lot of churches that were being established. But very early on, you can trace this in in the history of the Reformation, you had churches quickly planting churches. We didn't abandon the pattern of the New Testament to have churches commissioned top down and leaders ordained by other leaders. Um, Matthew 16, 18, and 19, you don't need to turn there, but we just read it. The beginning of the of the word church, at least the beginning usage, the first usage of of Christ using the word church, he begins by talking about Peter being commissioned to be the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. 
You're Peter on this rock. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. You have authority here. That's not papal succession. That's not, that's not, you know, we're creating the vicar of Christ. This is not Roman Catholicism, but it is the picture of top-down ordination, ordaining or setting apart of leaders from other leaders. The real pattern as we see it after the time of Christ, a good example of that is in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. And this would be helpful to look at and to tie in your mind this passage to the Ephesians passage that we often quote in this series that relates to Christ giving gifts to the church in the, in the form of pastors and teachers. If you just think about that, I guess we should use both, right? The church planters, the evangelists, and the pastor teachers. The Bible says that, the, that Christ is giving those gifts to the church. You don't think of that in terms of an ability or an endowment of some kind that you're able to do something, although all the pastors need to be able to do certain things. That's certainly the criteria of the pastoral epistles. We usually think of giftedness as some inherent ability, or I shouldn't say inherent, uh, granted an endowed ability by God. But in this case, the word gift is used, as it is in Ephesians, something that is granted to serve in an office, to fulfill a capacity. And here, this isn't what we would think about in terms of getting the gift of something, but in this case it is because we're talking about the offices of leadership in the church. Here's how it reads. Just jump right into the middle of this in verse 14. He says to Timothy, do not neglect the gift that you have. that was given to you when you were converted to Christ and the Holy Spirit enabled you to manifest the grace of God to the church. That's not what he says. Now, that's how giftedness is defined in 1 Corinthians 12 that we looked at last time. That's not what's described here. Here we have a kind of giftedness which refers back to that picture of Christ granting the church what it needs, and that is pastors and teachers and evangelists, right? church planters and those that continue to preach and feed the church. Here he says, you got that gift It was given to you by the prophetic word or by prophecy that these guys said that you are apt to do this. You are qualified to do this when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And we're going to look at this word tonight uh, in some more detail. But what we're talking about here is elders appointing elders. Pastors appointing pastors. You find the maverick who gets frustrated with the church, who starts his little back room Bible study at his house. Uh, He's smarter than the other guys, or at least more deft to get around in the Bible. Everybody thinks he's great. You ought to be a pastor. So they just appoint him a pastor. They they say, well, you're going to be our guy. We'll start a church here. That's not the biblical model. It's not the biblical pattern. It wasn't even the mindset during the Reformation when you couldn't find a good church to go to. See what I'm saying? This was a a pattern in the scripture that was the, the the churches have tried to follow from the beginning to make sure that when we have a church that starts, it's commissioned by other churches, and it is in, in, the, uh, the employ of the leadership is is sanctioned or ordained by other leaders, right? And so, be real careful uh, when you're out there listening to people who who have these upstart churches. When you say who who started this church, how did it start? How did it work? Were there other churches commissioning this church? Did the pastor become a pastor because he just appointed himself or because there were other pastors who uh, laid their hands on him, which was the ancient picture of saying we authorize the authority and and the qualifications of this man to do the work? Did that take place? Did pastors commission pastors? Did churches commission churches? What's the problem with self-appointment? Well, there's there's several. And and, and one would take us back to our... uh, comments in in Matthew 23, and that is that God, or I should say the entire Bible's view of authority. The Bible's not big on self-starting organizations, or I should say this, let's put it this way, revolutionary kind of of, of mentality. 
either in, in, polit- in a political sense or in an ecclesiastical sense. God is not big on that. You may look at the Reformation as a revolution, right? But really, I like the fact that we've called the Reformation a reformation because that was the goal. It wasn't to, to, a revolution to overthrow the church and to have upstart churches just popping up everywhere for anybody who had a Bible in their hand, although we were all about getting the Bible into the hands of, of the people. It was about the church being reformed and changed. And if the church at large, the Roman Catholic Church, wouldn't be reformed, then we would have to see the church start appointing churches that were based on the Scripture and are committed to the Word of God and the unadulterated view of the Gospel. Uh, Matthew 23, for instance, what did I say? How bad was the synagogue? Pretty bad. Was there going to be a kind of revolutionary work that Jesus would establish? Well, sure, he's God. He's got the right to do that. In Acts 2, he was going to do that. But while he had his disciples and his crowds following him, what did he say in Matthew 23, 1 and 2? Man, those leaders, they sit in the seat of Moses. You go, you listen, you take notes, and you do what they say. He didn't call for a revolutionary overthrow of the synagogue. Romans 13, if you want to take this principle and and think through the teaching on the government, uh, you know this text, and we've studied this uh, when we went through Romans not too long ago, uh, and we even questioned the American Revolution, if you remember that. You thought I was very unpatriotic for doing that. Uh, but I talked about five different groups during the revolution. Matter of fact, I just saw those books on my shelf today. Uh, Two-volume set of the sermons from clergy during the American Revolution. That was a tough time to be a preacher because you had to make some decisions when you had passages like this in Romans 13 telling you to subject yourself, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God and those who exist have been instituted by God. Pay your taxes, be submissive to them. Now, of course, I have to disobey the government when they tell me to disobey God, Right? But even if we're really making this revolution out of taxation without representation, I've got a real quandary spiritually. And I don't know if you remember that sermon. I do because I preach all of them three times at least. So uh, <laughs> I remember them. But uh, I talked about five different kinds of preachers during the, Re- the American Revolution. But what's my point? I'm saying the Bible's not real big on self-appointed uh, movements. He's just not. And I'll follow up with another statement here in a second. First Peter 2. Same thing. I didn't give you any verses on these. I probably should. Matthew 23, 1 and 2. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter chapter 2. We should turn to that one. I made you turn to any of these. Let's look at that one, please. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to show you the, the progression here of his view of authority, even when the authority isn't doing everything the way it ought to. I was reading a, a Spurgeon on the church this week, and he... Uh, I didn't know how many times, but I I read several times, at least three times, when he brought in the logic of what we often jokingly say, which I thought was some modern uh, saying, that, you know, if if you're looking for the perfect church, don't join it because you'll screw it all up. Uh, You know, Spurgeon said that in three different ways in three different sermons that I was reading. But uh, my point is, you see a lot of people that are very down on the church. There's a lot of church hoppers because they can't find the perfect church. They're very critical of the church. Here is a principle, at least, of biblical, the biblical view of authority that, that doesn't preclude us from changing churches or finding a good church, but certainly should make the hurdle a lot higher in our thinking as it relates to that. Why? Because there's a principle of submission to authority. And the authorities aren't self-appointed. The authorities are commissioned by God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Certainly would include the church. It's not his focus here, but keep reading. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme, who at this time in history was Nero, who was a bad guy, and he's saying be subject to him, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, the governors could be a bit corrupt too and, and knuckleheaded in your mind. 
much like what we see in Scripture as to what we're going to build this pattern in a minute. God wants us to submit to Christ. Christ is going to send delegated authority, and that delegated authority, just like here, God sends leaders to the church, and now the Bible says submit to those intermediate delegated authorities in the church. And he says, or to the governor sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that kind of view toward authority, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, right? You really answer to God, not to the government or your pastor. Yet, you know the value God has on submitting to authority. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. That would be wrong. But living as servants of God, he says, that's what you ought to do. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the, the emperor. Servants, now, look at the subject change. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Very hard to, to, to emulate these principles in the church of Jesus Christ today in the 21st century in America in, in, a, in, a, in a world uh, or a Western culture that values this kind of autonomy and the questioning of authority that became so rampant in our society where people uh, don't have this kind of, of virtue. And they don't even see it as a virtue. They see it as weakness. They see it as, as, as being a milk toast or a doormat. And yet the Bible says you need to recognize that the authorities that he sets up, both in government and in the church, are, are authorities that are sent by God, instituted by God. They're not self-appointed, and you shouldn't appoint yourself as someone over the authority by rejecting the authority that God has put in place. Now, that's a general broad principle. We'll look at it more specifically as it relates to the church later, but that's a good place for us to start. God has a real problem with self-appointed authorities. In other words, you get so sick of me or whatever, you've tried five pastors here in South Orange County, and, and you've been around the block a few times, and, and you're going to go start your own Bible study in your house. That's what I'm saying. That's a problem. And, and, and then you say, well, we're going to be a church. Uh, it's a problem. It's a problem on precept in the Scripture, and it's a problem on principle in the Scripture. Number two, well, what about the unjust master who's who's uh, treating the servant unjustly? What about the governor who's on the take and is, and is perverting justice? What about the emperor who is, is, is terrible and, and against the virtue? And what about the church leaders that aren't what they should be? Okay? Uh, instead of revolution, what God has in mind is, of course, reformation as much as we can accomplish. But even if we can't accomplish it, just like in, in Matthew 23, when those Pharisees were so far gone in their hypocrisy, what was the solution? Solution was God was going to judge them. God was going to bring them to an end. Now, we looked last week at the end of our time together at Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And we looked at, uh, there's two churches that were not criticized. They were only commended. And then we looked at the other five churches that almost all of them had some commendation. They all had criticism. And then they all had the threat do you remember that? Of Christ's discipline. If Christ is real, and if God is who he is, and if the promises of God in Scripture are true, the ultimate solution may not happen as quickly as you want for all kinds of perverted leadership, no matter what the problem is, is God's justice and God's judgment. And God has promised to bring judgment on his church because he loves those uh, people that are in the church, and he wants to discipline churches because he uh, disciplines those that he loves. Now, even when the church itself, in, in a wholesale way, completely has drifted off, what did he say? Well, he would depart. He would take their lampstand. He would come against them in one way or another, even if it meant abandoning the church. 
A lot of people claim Christ in a lot of churches, as you'll, churches you'll find in the, in the phone book. And you'll say, well, clearly, those aren't all you know, submitting to Christ. You're right. Many of them, though, got, it's Ichabod. You remember the word Ichabod in the Old Testament? Uh, Ichabod, the glory is departed. Ich, gone. Kabod, the glory is gone. Uh, at, at some point, when God sees a church naming the name of Christ that does not adhere to the teaching of Christ, he departs, and that church may live on as some kind of social organization. But uh, he's not a part of it, and you won't find him there. And he's not active in the church, in its teaching, or in the worship. God promises to dis- discipline his church and its leaders. Interesting, too, to note, and we won't get into this tonight, but all seven of those churches, if you go to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you'll notice they all begin by talking to the messenger of the church. Look what it says. It's translated, Angelos is translated, it's transliterated, angel, uh, which I think a lot of people have preferred because we got a book that's really weird and apocalyptic, and there are angels that show up in this book, lots of them. Uh, but the word is really messenger here, and most, and many, I should say at least, through church history have understood this to be the primary preaching leader of the church, the primary person who stands up and brings the message of God to the people. And all of these begin, if that's true, uh, by, a, by addressing the, 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 the lead preaching pastor in those churches, and then come the commendation, and then come the criticism and the promise of judgment if they don't repent in all It's five out of seven cases. But if you notice, to the angel of the church of Sardis, to the messenger of the church of Laodicea, to the messenger of the church of Philadelphia, Pergam, Thyatira, Smyrna, and Ephesus, to say them in random order. All right, leadership of Christ. A lot of the mavericks, a lot of the home churchers, the the growing number of home churches, they'll say, well, we don't need the church because the Bible's pretty clear. We're all about the leadership of Christ. Uh, and, and, And really, we just, we don't need the man, earthly leaders, because we follow Christ. Granted, Christ leads true churches. He is the leader of true churches. I make that distinction because, as I said, there are many churches that are Ichabod. The Spirit is not a part of. Christ is not the head of because they are not adhering to the teachings of Christ. And therefore, as Revelation 2 and 3 says, the lampstand's gone. They may have a building and an entry in the phone book, but they're not true churches. Let's think this through from a biblical perspective. We're going to spend a little time in Colossians 1. Several of these points will uh, we'll, we'll glean from, from Colossians 1. So once you jot this down, let's turn to Colossians 1. He's the boss, I mean, to put it in the vernacular. He is the leader of the church. The church should be, in our own thinking, and even in our, in our vocabulary, we should think in terms of Christ being the leader of the church, the boss of the church, the one who is to be the preeminent leader of the church. And that's put as poetically as, and, and powerfully as ever in Colossians chapter 1, dropping a lot of his uh, credentials in this paragraph. Start in verse 15, please. He is the image of the invisible God, speaking here of Christ, which is a weird concept. You weren't supposed to ever think of God, Exodus 20, in terms of images, and yet here is someone in human form, God incarnate, in flesh. It's one of the reasons we didn't want to picture this, because the picture of Christ was, of God was coming in Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the prototokos, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that he was the first created being, right? Because he's God. He created everything. It means that he is the one who is the heir of all things, the one who's at the top of the heap, the one who is, if, if we're talking about visible things, the preeminent one of all visible things, the incarnate Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, Right? He is the self-existing God, the second person of the triune God, the triune fellowship of deity in heaven and on earth. Whatever it is, Christ created it, visible or invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, no matter what they are, and you can just keep on going down that emperors, governors, leaders, you know, 
people who are in charge of, of, of homeowners associations uh, you know, and leaders in the church. He is, he is the head of all of them. All things were created through him and for him. All of those things are for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. There's the line we should underline. When it comes now specifically to the church, the Bible likes this, this Greek uh, phrase, this Greek word, soma, the concept of the church. The body is how he wants to view us, and Christ now is the head of the body. They're connected. They're inseparable. They're, they're intrinsic to one another. But one is clearly following the direction of the other. That's how the church should be viewed. The head of the church is Christ. The boss of the church is Christ. He is the beginning. He's the prototokos from the dead. And I use the Greek word prototokos because what word do you hear in that? Prototype, right? He is the prototype of all visible things. He is the prototype of all the resurrected bodies. Lazarus wasn't the prototype, right? The the people raised from the dead by Elijah and Elisha weren't the prototype because they were resuscitated. He was resurrected, transformed into an eternal body one that it was impervious to death and disease. Uh, he was the prototokos from the dead. In that everything, he might be preeminent. In the church, he's the preeminent one. He's the authority. He's the boss. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, heaven, making peace by the blood of the, of the cross. See, so the wise thing to do, no matter what it is, whether you're, you're, the, you're the manager of a tire store, right? Whether you're, you're an artist, whether you're an architect, whether you're a, you run cable for, for Cox Cable, right? I don't care what you do. You're a pastor of a church. Everything was designed for, for Christ to see him as the preeminent one. doesn't mean you're preaching at those things, but whatever you're doing, you're doing to the glory of God. You're serving Christ as the head of it all. In the church, it ought to be so clear. Obviously, Christ is the head, and, and he is designed to be the head of all things. He's the boss. And if that's the case, then we obey him. Okay, I'm going to get this down to church leadership here, but see where we're starting. Who is the head of Compass Bible Church? Jesus Christ. What are we called to do as we assemble together? We're supposed to obey Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. Whatever we do, we want to obey him. Keep reading. Verse 21. We stopped in verse 20. We'll keep going. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, right? And it was continuing to make inroads in the ancient world and still does now around the globe of which I, Paul, am a minister. Now look at that. He says we were separated from God, we lived as sinful people, as everyone does, living for themselves. But now he's brought us back and reconciled to himself, starting with his identification with himself on the cross. He got punished on the cross, and your life was with him being punished. And so the, the debt was paid in full. He yelled out to Telestai, you're no longer guilty before God. Now he wants to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach. Right? That may be the statement of your declared justification, But keep reading, verse 23. Indeed, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So now I recognize this. I'm supposed to be holy and blameless in my behavior, as Peter put it. I am to to be stable and growing. Look at the words he uses. Continuing in that faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So I need to be all about what he said, all about what he taught, 
I need to recognize that I'm in a different place now than I was before, assembling with people that are now called the body of Christ, and we want to obey the head. We want to bring glory to the head. We want to continue to trust the head. We want to continue to reflect his virtue and his good. That's what the church is assembled to do. That's what we're here for. Now, look at the last line of verse 23. We read it real quickly, but let's read it again. And of which I, Paul, am a diakonos, a minister, a servant. I'm simply trying to help get that done. What? To be presented holy, blameless, above reproach, continuing in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. I'm here to help you do that, to bring glory to the head, to obey the head, to honor the head by having him be preeminent in your life. Paul says, I'm just in the middle of that equation, trying to help you get that done. Okay? That is where we bring in earthly leaders. Earthly leaders in the church of Jesus Christ, even if they're the apostle Paul writing the scripture, still sees himself as a diakonos, a a, a servant. That's where we get the word deacon from. We'll talk about that another night. But someone who's willing to do whatever it takes to try and get you obedient to the the head of the church. The point of leaders in the church isn't for you to get them obedient to you, the leader, to get the the people obedient, but to get you obedient to Christ. Now, there's more to it than just that. We'll look at that. But that's a good place to start recognizing that the leaders are simply delegates in this, trying to get people to respond to Christ. Now, if I preach a sermon, and I preach a sermon about something that relates to obedience, teaching you to obey all that Christ commanded, right? If you do that, you could see that as obeying what I said, but I'm a delegate simply telling you to do what God said, right? That's the point, and that's how leaders fit into this in that great statement, but we should keep reading. Uh, Let's talk about it this way, serving the leader, the, the minister is not only serving the church, but I want to see them as serving the, the ultimate leader, Christ himself. The servant leaders in the church, and we use that word sometimes, we get it from passages like this. Paul's a leader, clearly, but he's a servant of the head. He's serving the body by, by helping them obey the head, and he's also serving the head himself, serving the leader. He says, of which I am a part of, the end of verse 3, the 23 rather, I've become a minister. Now I rejoice, look at verse 24 now. You're still in Colossians 1? Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That should make you pause. If, unless you're asleep right now, you should say, that's weird. Think that through now. I'm a minister of the gospel. I want to see you stable and obeying and blameless before God. He says, and I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. The pains and afflictions and problems I go through for you I can, I'm happy about that because in my flesh, in my life, the pain that's caused by me leading in the church, right? what I'm doing is filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Whoa, wait a minute. That sounds like heresy. That should sound like heresy to you, right? Frown at me if that sounds a little bit like heresy. That sounds like heresy because didn't Christ on the cross say to tell us thy? What does that mean? Paid in full. Did he, was he afflicted enough on the cross to purchase our salvation? Yes, absolutely. Paid in full. Isaiah 53, he saw his son crushed as a sacrifice and he, his soul was satisfied. That we call that propitiation in the gospel or in, the, in the, the epistle to the Romans. The propitiation by his blood, satisfied, complete. What in the world are we talking about? Okay. Well, it isn't the justification of the saints that we're concerned about here. This is the sanctification of the saints to be stable, continuing on in the faith, presenting themselves in the world and before God 
as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable before God. Or in this case, he says, holy and blameless. What was that how it was put there in, in, in our text? Verse, what was that? Thank you. 22, present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Okay, here's the thing. Even though Christ was going to go to the cross later and he was going to die and, and, and completely be completely afflicted enough to purchase the salvation of all of his disciples, during his earthly ministry, he was concerned about teaching them to obey. He was concerned even before he purchased their justification, he was concerned about teaching them and prodding them and exhorting them in their sanctification. Was that trouble? Yeah, it was trouble. Was that a bit of an affliction for Christ? Oh, yeah. What did he say to his future pastor who was going to pastor in Jerusalem, this 5,000-member church? Right? At some point, he said, you're setting your minds on earthly things. So it started this way. Get behind me, Satan. Remember that? That must not have been a fun conversation. That was affliction. That was frustration. He was concerned when he thought about Peter denying him three times. That hurt his heart. Right? Satan has demanded to sift you like weed. I prayed for you. Think that one through. Here is Christ being afflicted over these people growing in Christ. Now, here's the thing. He's gone, right? The affliction of the cross, he's he's done all the uh, the suffering he needs to do to purchase our justification. But there's a lot of sanctification of a lot of Christians who are justified that need someone to help them go, man, get behind me, Satan, right? Stop thinking, putting your minds on the things of man. You know, you're going to, it looks like you're being tempted. You're going to fall into sin. What did Paul say? He talks to, to his generation he's ministering to. He says, who is led into sin without my intense concern? I'm burdened. I mean, I have all the trouble externally of being afflicted by the enemies of the cross. I have all this internal suspect and, and questioning of my leadership. He says, and I have the daily anxiety. That's the word, marizomai he uses, of, of all the churches. I'm trying to minister to people and I'm afflicted over this. He talks about people praying to the Colossians later in the book who are wrestling in prayer for their good. That's affliction. Now read it again. He says this, I've become a minister of, of this. He says in uh, verse 23, and now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I'm struggling as a leader in the church and I'm doing it for you. And in my flesh, my life now, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. What does that mean? Right? Christ is not here doing this physically, pastoring this church and dealing with all the problems, marriage or, or sin or temptation or restoration or conflict. He's not doing that here. He's in heaven, exalted at the right hand of the Father. But he sent leaders in the church now to be afflicted in leading the church. And Paul says, when I'm doing that, I'm filling that up. I'm serving the leader. I'm serving Christ by taking up what he didn't finish, right? Which is what? The pastoring, the leading, the prompting, the exhorting, the teaching of people to be holy and blameless in this world. And he says, I'm doing that, filling up Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God. I'm reading verse 25 now, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Okay, now there's the major tool. Let's put it down that way, relaying his word. How does Paul try to get the body to obey the head? Well, he goes through all the hard work of trying to minister to them. What's the major way that he does that? He does that by being faithful in his stewardship that was given to God to make the word of God fully known. The major role of the pastor, the leader in the church, is to utilize the word of God, the inscripturated command and mind of Christ, to get that into your life. And that, I can tell you, having done this for some time, is a great affliction. It's a lot of work, but it's the major thing. And I'm not talking about preaching. I mean, that's the easy part compared to the hard part of dealing with the issues in life that make the, the disciples in our church struggle with this. And we can say it from the pulpit. 
right? Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then why, why is it that this is constantly a problem and we're constantly trying to, to, to rectify and help marriages and fix things? Why? Because there's a lot of work involved in relaying the word of God and having it applied in people's lives. Relaying the word. We should keep reading. Keeps going. Look at verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generation, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. We study hard that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We want everyone to grow. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. I want to give up. I don't give up. Keep going. Keep working. I'm a servant of the leader, benefiting the church, getting people to obey the boss. How do I do that? Relaying his word. Relaying his word. Now, two more things external to this passage. We'll find them both in Hebrews 13. But let's turn to Hebrews 13 and, and get, one, get two more principles about the earthly leaders being delegates of Christ. It's hard enough to take the entire full word of God, as it says, fully proclaiming the word of God, and, and trying to get the church to, first of all, even know it, to understand it, to read it, to incorporate it, to take thinking that's contrary to it, to expel that, and then to try and take the temptations that are contrary to that and, and fight that. that that's, hard. That's, that's hard enough. But to try to do it in a context that is not the context in which the Bible is written makes it even more complex. Okay? Um, and that kind of complexity, and I hate to use the word contextualize, but to be able to take the living out of the Christian life and to contextualize that for Orange County life is, is, is going to be different in terms of how it, how it works itself out today than it would be then in this place as it would be in that place with this culture as it was with that culture. Now, I know the major themes are all the same, right? There's nothing new under the sun. I get that. But in terms of what, you know, how do we deal with, I don't know, in vitro fertilization? That's not something we can turn in a, in a text to and figure out. Keeping someone on a, on a breathing apparatus in the hospital, what do we do with that? Those are the kinds of things in living out the Christian life. The leaders play a role in that. Take a look at verse 7 of Hebrews 13. This is one principle we could find this elsewhere. First Peter 5, for instance, we see the same principle at work, but here it's stated so well. Verse 7, remember your leaders. And that's not like you're going to just forget them. This means keep them in your minds. Keep your leaders in mind. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, if it was just about relaying the word, you'd say, remember their sermons when they taught you the word and just remember everything they said from the Bible, right? Here, though, it's the outcome of their way of life. Watch how they apply the word of God in their lives. Let's put it down this way. Number three, they're showing you in the context in which you live how it is to live the Christian life in your culture, in your day. And you should be able to examine their lives and they should be, as the Bible requires of them, an example to the flock. They should be someone setting the pace in how the Christian life is lived in our culture, and you should be able to follow their way of life. Look at the outcome of their faith. See, things have changed. Even the issue of alcohol, for instance. Hot topic, might as well jump in. Um, you know, drinking wine in the first century is a lot different than what's on the shelves at, at Bevmo down the street. Just different. The alcoholic content is different. The culture surrounding alcohol is different than it was then, right? There's, there's no prohibition against, against drinking wine in the Bible. Clearly not, right? But even as you think about how to live as it relates to alcohol in the 21st century with the culture in which we have, 
here in this place with the alcoholic content in the drinks that are on the shelf at BevMo, right? I mean, you should at least be able to say, now listen, what, what, is, what are our leaders doing as it relates to stuff like that? How do they live it? And what's the outcome of their decisions as it relates to things like that, right? Whether it's financial, whether it's personal, whether it's whatever it is, the pastors of the church are trying to help you obey the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And one of the things they do beyond giving you and relaying you the word of God is to try and set a template of life for you. It's not always with the exhortation that they would bring to a passage of scripture, right? We, We can't quote chapter and verse, but you should observe their lives and the outcome of their way of life. And according to this text, assuming that they are setting a good example, you should imitate their faith. You should follow their example. And I keep quoting 1 Peter 5, 3. says the same thing. Being examples to the flock as he exhorts the leaders of the church. Plus all the requirements for the pastors in the church in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. I mean, so many of those are just based on being an example to the flock. How they deal with conflict. How they deal with issues, vices of the day, whatever it might be. Okay, drop down to verse 17. One more aspect to this. What these earthly leaders do as delegated authorities. Well, they're serving the leader, the ultimate leader, getting you to obey him, relaying his word, setting an example as to how to live the Christian life in the context in which you live. Verse 17. Uh, Yeah, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, again, you would never have to say something like this, and we can find this in First Thess and a lot of other places, where there's a command for us to submit to the leaders of the church and to obey them, not just what they teach. He's already talked about the teaching of the word in verse 7. This now assumes part of what we see in the pastoral epistles, and that is this, that those leaders are deciding on practical matters, the practical matters of what they have to choose to set up as requirements or principles or, or instructions for the church. When those leaders make those decisions, right, it is imperative upon the church to obey those decisions. It's as simple. I mean, I, I think of this. I was reading through uh, several of these passages today. Acts 14, for instance, when uh, I was looking at that and deriving principles of leadership there, it says, when they arrived and gathered the church together, in verse 27, they declared all that God had done and how he'd opened a door of, of faith to the Gentiles. When they had arrived, they gathered the church together. The leaders of the church got there to town and said, we're going to meet, pass the word, come. Think about how that, uh, you don't ever think about it. But when are we going to meet? What time are we going to meet? What day are we going to meet, right? Leaders of the church have to, that's a practical matter. Someone's got to decide that, right? And all I'm saying is you could start with that and go all the way through the pastoral epistles, thinking of things, for instance, how we create a criteria for uh, the widows. The principle is they got to be known for good deeds if they're going to receive any financial support. Got to be over 65. All those things we looked at when we studied that passage briefly, they're talking about the poor. Think that through now. Who's going to decide the practicals about whether or not it goes this way? uh, And and yes, they they are known for good works or no, they're not, right? You've got practical decisions to make, even in how you you, you compensate them. You've got to make decisions there. And the decisions, the Bible says, right, land in the lap of the leaders of the church to make those decisions. And the Bible then says that those in the church need to obey those practical decisions. Oh, that sounds like way too much power. Those guys can make decisions and they'll be out of control. That's why even in this text, when it says obey them, what is the very next thing it says? They have to give an account. Every single thing that is chosen by those leaders to do, they will give an account. It's no different for for a boss at a secular job. You're a Christian and you're a manager. 
No different for you. You'll give an account for everything that you ask your employees to do. Or a parent. Are you a parent? Did you, tell, did you set up rules for your kid? Curfew? Did you set a curfew for your kid? And if your kid came late home from that curfew, that was sin for the kid. Why? Because they were told to obey their parents. Think that one through. You see what I'm saying? And, and they may claim it's unreasonable, but if you stuck your curfew at whatever time, you then determine whether or not, based on the time they come home, whether they've sinned before God or not, they're called to obey you. Now, they can say, my parents are out of control. I'm going to come home anytime I want. I'm going to come home at 1130. They want me home at nine. I'm not going to do it because it's an unreasonable request. Just like, I mean, you could have a passage like this for parental decisions or managerial decisions at a secular job. Every leader who makes those practical decisions will give an account for those decisions, see? So it's not like Christ is not a part of this. This is where I think people, in some of their checks and balances they want to set up in the local church, we can talk about this next week as well, uh, sometimes operate as though there is no God, that God is not a God who keeps leaders accountable and will judge his church and has no problem uh, doing that and promises to do that, including in this case, every leader being held accountable before God. Earthly leaders are delegates. What's their job? To make sure that we all understand who the leader of the church is, Christ. We all understand the goal. All of us are supposed to obey Christ. Our job as leaders is to serve the leader by filling up the afflictions of Christ in that regard. What does that mean? I'm working hard to get you to do what Christ worked hard to get his generation to do. And in this place, that's the job of the leaders. Relaying his word, primary means and mechanism by which that gets done. Showing you an example of how to live out the Christian life with all the particulars of values and decision-making. And then sometimes putting down and legislating, if you will, decisions for the church that are practical matters that have to be decided and have to be weighed in upon. All right, talk about sanctioned church leaders. A lot of extra biblical confusion on this matter. What's the confusion? I don't know. I just threw a few words together this afternoon about church leadership and roles in church leadership. Maybe from your high church past, rector, vicar, nun, monk, abbot, cardinal, pope, okay? Cleric, clergy, director, committee, board, chairman. These are now more in the vein of, of the Protestant churches there in the bottom line. All of those, right? They all mean something in the structure of church governance and leadership in churches around the world today, right? But they're all extra biblical. And when you start adding, you know, archbishop, most reverend, right reverend, whatever, we, we start to get very confused as to what the rankings and leadership and authority, how it's invested or how it's vested here, how it's not vested there, what the jobs and roles are. It gets pretty confusing today. And that was just a quick list. We could go on with all kinds of leadership roles in churches today. But I'm here to tell you there are only two biblically sanctioned tiers of leadership in the church. If you've been through the partners program, you've got a whole chapter, not a whole chapter, maybe a third of the chapter dealing with just that one question. What are the two biblically sanctioned tiers of leadership? There is no pope, there's no abbot, there's no cardinals, there's no monks, there's no nuns, there's no rector, victor, uh, directors, committees, boards, board chairmen. None of that is in the Bible. None of it. There's just two tiers of leadership in the church, okay? We're gonna, this is just setting up the framework, then we're going to get into the details of all this this week on pastors next week, or later, a couple weeks uh, down the road, on ministry leaders. Pastors, a.k.a. elders and overseers, we'll talk about that in a minute for the rest of our time. The other one is ministry leaders. We get these words from the Bible. Uh, ministry, uh, the, the, the diakonos, the, 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 the I mean, service of the church, uh, also known as deacons. That's just a transliterated word. And I add the word leaders because clearly everyone's supposed to be serving in the church. But there are those that are designated as standouts, as examples of leadership, and they are uh, supposed to meet a certain level of requirement to do that. And, and these are 
biblical words and words you'll hear around here, pastors and ministry leaders. Those are the two tiers of biblically sanctioned leadership. Can you put other ones in there? Sure, you, you could, but we need to be clear. If it's in yellow, it's a biblical tier of leadership. If it's in red, and we could have made a whole page of red words, they're not biblically sanctioned. And if you want to you add a, you know, an extra rector for this and an abbot for that and a cardinal for that, fine. I guess you can do that until it starts to impinge upon the clarity of biblical leadership in the church because Christ sanctioned two pastors and ministry leaders. Okay, let's spend the rest of our time thinking about pastors here. Let's talk about some very important vocabulary. The first word you need to be very comfortable with in the Greek New Testament, New Testament is the word episkopos, 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 episkopos. Be fun to say, be good for you to say, episkopos, episkopos. Sounds kind of bad, episkopos. It's not bad. It's a great word. We get the word episcopal from it, okay? Uh, we're going to talk about this another night. We don't have time for it tonight, but we'll talk about Presbyterian Episcopal. We'll talk about pyramid levels of leadership, ziggurat levels of leadership, flat levels of leadership, congregational level. We'll get to that. But right now we're dealing with the words, okay? Episcopos. Episcopos in the Bible, number one, is translated overseer or bishop. In the King James, it was translated bishop. You can already see we're starting to complicate things because <laughs> bishop, well, that wasn't in red. You didn't put that up as an example of an extra... I understand that. The role is extra-biblical as you see it applied in the Catholic Church, but the word is not extra-biblical. It's in the Bible, at least the Greek word from which we translate bishop. Episkopos is the word translated bishop in the old translations and overseer in most modern translations. What does it mean? Okay. It means someone who is a superintendent, someone who is a manager, someone who has responsibilities to superintend, to watch over something. That's why the English translation is, is a decent one. Overseer. You're overseeing things. You are, to put it more practically, providing administrative oversight. You're making decisions, just like a manager would, to determine whether or not this should be done or that should be done. You're providing oversight. You're overseeing. You're superintending. You're managing. If you study this word in a lexicon, you'll find often it intersects with this word as it comes into our language, a guardian, a guardian. Uh, some key texts. Just jot the text down. I'll put them up on the screen for you. Give you three examples. Acts 20, 28. Paul's saying goodbye to the leaders of the Ephesian church. He's going to go on to Jerusalem. He's, he's, you know, he says, I'm sure I'm going to get arrested there. It's going to be trouble for me. But he warns them on the way out. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you episkopos, overseers, bishops, right? Don't like the word bishop, but overseers, superintendents, managers, to care for the church of God. That's what the overseer does. It's what the superintendent does, oversees it, cares for it, which he obtained with his own blood. Talk about accountability. You sense that when you hear him say that. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of episkopos, he desires a noble task. Therefore, this is the first part of verse 2, the episkopos must be above reproach, husband of one wife, not given to wine, and on goes the list. If anyone aspires to the office, the role in the church, of superintending, managing, being a guardian of the church, he desires a noble task. That's a big deal. And if it's such a big deal, here's the deal. Not anyone can do it. Here's a long list of things the episkopos, the guardian, the leader, the overseer, the administrative leader has got to be. And, and on starts the list of requirements. One more parallel passage as Paul writes to Titus, who's going to do the same on the island of Crete, set up some episkopos. He says, for an episkopos 
as God's steward, there's our picture from Colossians 1, must be above reproach, not arrogant, quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain, and on it goes. Episcopos, or an episcopos as God's steward, an overseer, a superintendent, a guardian of the church, can't be all these things. Okay, now, interestingly enough, 1 Peter chapter 2, I would like you to look at this one. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, uses this very word for Christ himself. This is interesting. Back to the picture of the head having delegated authority in the church to serve as the role to relay the word of God, to flesh out Christianity in the culture in which he lives, to be setting up practical decisions and legislating practical things that the church now must obey. The same word is used as we start to see important words for leaders in the church of Christ himself. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 24. For he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, clearly talking about Christ, that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the episcopos of your souls. Who's the episcopos of your soul? Christ is, right? Who's the episcopos of the church? Well, some human being. But they serve a similar role. One is a servant of the other. They're doing the same kind of thing. One is now filling up the afflictions of the other if the other were here in the flesh doing that work. The episcopos, the superintendent, the guardian, the caregiver, the one providing administrative oversight, superintending, managing, the episcopos. Second important word, poimen. Episcopos, poimen. These would be great words for us to have just down in our minds. Episcopos, poimen. Poimen is translated in our Bible either shepherd or pastor. It struck me that the ESV translators there in Ephesians, when it talked about gifts being given to men, they translated it shepherd and teachers. Uh, But it's the word poimen. Most translations translate it pastor teachers. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue to say shepherd and teachers, but usually we think of pastor teachers. In some churches, they like to call their senior lead guy a pastor teacher. But what's the point? The point is the word shepherd. Now, this is such a colorful and rich word, I hardly need to define it for you. Clearly, it is an analogy of someone with a flock. What do they do? They feed the flock. What's the primary role of the delegate authority to relay the word of God? That's what he's primarily called to do. Matter of fact, that's one of the reasons we have ministry leaders, so that the pastors can not have to be bogged down with that in their schedule so they can give themselves to the ministry of the word of God. And in the text here, we think about the idea of a shepherd. The shepherd is the one who's constantly feeding the flock, guiding them to to pastures to feed. They also are at the front of the flock, leading the flock. They even carry a stick to help prod the flock along if they're not going along as they ought to. They lead the flock, they feed the flock, and of course the picture in the Scripture, they protect the flock. The picture in Acts 20 of the Episcopos there, even uses the word poimen, we'll look at that in a minute, is in that context, guard the flock. There are going to be people, he says, that rise up in your own ranks to draw people away from the church and follow after them. You... Poimen need to protect the flock, guard them. That's what shepherds do. They don't want the wolf coming amongst the sheep. They feed, they lead, they protect. It's a rich picture. There's a whole book written on that in that biblical studies. uh, If you know those little silver books that we have in our bookstore, uh, Carson does a lot of the editing on that series. One of them is just about that word, shepherd, from the beginning. They trace it from the beginning of the Old Testament through the intertestamental writings all the way through the New Testament. That is a great book tracing the development of the idea of leaders in the church and the ultimate leader, Jesus Christ himself, being a shepherd. That's a rich book, a great one. Uh, If you have interest in this or aspire to be a pastor one day, that's a good book to read. Key texts. Let's look at a couple of them. 
I'll put them up on the screen. Just write down the reference if you would. First Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Now, this is the verbal form. I get that. I understand the difference between verbs and nouns. And this is not the noun. It's the verb. What you need to know is it says this, poimen, the flock of God. Matter of fact, whenever you see the word flock, it's a form of the word poimen. It's those that are shepherded, literally. I mean, if you were going to translate it that way. The poimen, you ought to poimen those that are poimened of the flock of, of God. That is among you, exercising oversight, right? Not, as, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. But here's the verbal form of the picture, again, calling the church a flock. You're the pastor. Feed them, lead them, protect them. Another one, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. I've already quoted this one. He gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, and poimen and didaskalos, the poimen and teachers, shepherds and teachers. Feed them, guard them, guide them, protect them for the equipping of the saints, the building up of the ministry. Now, it's probably because of that book that I've read. It's a great book on the history of that. The word shepherd used for leaders in the church is used less than episkopos and the third word we're about to look at, but it's used the most in the Bible for leaders. Uh, it's all over the Old Testament. Now, again, it's a Hebrew word, ra'ah, which is the Hebrew word, is translated poimen in the Septuagint. So in the Septuagint, when you're reading the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'll find the word poimen everywhere as it relates to the leaders of the people of God. David himself, right, was a shepherd, uh, and not just in the field, but he became a shepherd of God's people, uh, the prophets, the teachers. So I added an Old Testament text because... There's just so many. It would be a great study to do just looking up the word ra'ah in Hebrew, which is 173 times, by the way, in the Hebrew Old Testament. You look that up in your Logos Bible software. And he's really mad in Jeremiah, which we read recently, uh, all the shepherds that are messing up. But here's what he says. I will give you poimen. It's in the LXX. That's the abbreviation for the Septuagint, right? You know that. After my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding? The picture of people needing leaders clear throughout the Bible. God's into organization. He's for it. I guess I could add that as the fourth one. Jesus Christ, the apostles, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. Here's a great example. He wants to give the church leaders, and the leaders he wants to give them in terms of spiritual guide, guides, if you will, spiritual leaders. He loves to employ the word poimen or ra'ah in Hebrew, which is the picture of the New Testament pastor. Interestingly enough, Jews of Christ. There's a lot of passages where it's used of Christ. Matter of fact, the one we just looked at in 1 Peter he says, you've returned to the shepherd, the poimen, and the episcopos of your soul, both the one who leads and feeds and protects and guides you and the one who oversees, superintends, manages you. Now, this word, you know, you know John 10, right? In John chapter 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd, lay down my life for the sheep. Matter of fact, it's 11 verses plus of Christ calling himself the shepherd or the gate for the flock and all of that, if you remember John 10. Christ is the shepherd. Who's the shepherd of the people of God? Christ, right? let's use the other word because it's the same Greek word. Who's the pastor of the church of Christ? Jesus, right? But who are the pastors, human ones, filling up the afflictions that Christ didn't finish with the sanctification work of the church? Oh, those are the human beings. They have names and pictures on the website. See that? The Episcopos, he's the great Episcopos, Episcopos in the church. He's the great shepherd, under shepherds in the church. Third one, you should know all these words here. Very important, presbyteros, the presbyteros. Episcopos, poimen, presbyteros. Don't ever forget those Greek words. They are so important, so important. And, and we'll tie them all together here in a minute. But let's start with this. It's translated in your Bible, elder. This is used a lot. It's used a lot because in the intertestamental period, right, we had a lot of trouble there in the intertestamental period. The leaders of the people of God, we kind of got out of vogue to call them shepherds. And 
Elder was the primary word. It can be used, it's used 66 times in the New Testament. Six times it's used of old people, because it can mean that. But that's not the usage that we normally find in the Bible. Uh, Occasionally it will be uh, translated old man if the context demands it, but only six out of 66 times in the New Testament. This is a very popular word in the Old Testament for leaders. So let's think about the meaning of this. As a matter of fact, the first occurrence of the word in the Old Testament, which if you look in the Septuagint, you'll find the word presbyteros. If you look in the Hebrew text, you'll see zakin, and zakin is the Hebrew word we translate presbyteros, which we translate elder. So in your Old Testament, when you hit the word elder, right, you're, you're getting the same, the same idea. And our first reference to it is in Genesis 50, verse 7, the very first reference in all of the Bible to it, and it's referring to the leaders in Egypt and the leaders in Joseph's family. It reads this way. So Joseph went to bury his father, and he went up with all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and the elders of the land of Egypt. Okay? Now, the elders were in a family, the oldest people, the patriarchs, we'd call them. Right? But when it comes to the land, we're not talking about all the old people, all the senior citizens of Egypt. We're talking about the people that led the nation, people that lead an extended family, the people that lead the nation. Leaders in Egypt were called, obviously in the, in the intertestament, or the... Uh, Exodus wanderings, often we see the word elder there for the leaders of the people. Moses would call the elders together. Those who led in the synagogue, particularly in the intertestamental period, very common to call them elders. And interestingly enough, another reason it's so popular in the New Testament. Remember the New Testament was written, you know, at the height of the, the Roman Greco world. It's also the word used for those that led in the Roman Senate. Matter of fact, we get the word Senate ultimately from this, translated from uh, Greek into Latin, uh, and the word presbyteros in Latin is the word we get the word senate from, a senator, I should say, a senator. So when someone in the first century heard the word presbyteros, if you were a secularist, you would think of someone leading the nation of, of, of the empire of Rome, leading in the senate. If you had a Jewish background, you would probably think of the leaders of the nation of Israel, uh, and even if you were in Egypt. They would use the word. Joseph spent a lot of time there. The leaders of the leaders of the country were called elders. Obviously, in your family, what was the parallel? Why do we call them elders? Because usually, in an extended family, the patriarchs are the leaders of the family, the oldest people of the family. But obviously, you don't have to be the oldest person in Rome to be a senator, and you don't have to be the oldest person in the synagogue to be the elders of, of the synagogue. And so it was in the church. So let's look at some key passages in the New Testament regarding this. And again, there's, this is ubiquitous. There's lots of references to it. 60 of them referring to church leaders. Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete that you might put what remains into order and appoint presbyteros in every town as I directed you. So there needs to be the senators of the church, the, the, the people that lead in the church. Put them in place. James 5.14, if anyone is sick, James said, let him call for the presbyteros of the church and let them pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. There's the picture of the leaders being called upon. Who, by the way, the reason they're anointing with oil is usually they were the most educated people, the most proficient people, and they would often attend to people's medical needs with the ultimate bactine of the day, which was oil. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? He bandaged him up, anointed him with oil. What was the point? It wasn't a ceremony. It was, that was the salve and the healing medicinal elixir of the day, if you will. All right, First Timothy 5. Here's another example. Do not charge, do not admit a charge, don't accept a charge, don't entertain a charge against a presbyteros except on the evidence of two or three witnesses because the Bible knows that the presbyteros of any organization are always going to be attacked and you should be very 
your, high, your threshold ought to be really high for believing dirt about the leaders. Um, that'd be a good sermon. Don't have time for that one. But that'd, be, that'd be a good sermon. All right. Now, you may have heard this. This is the only reason I add this. There was no use of the word presbyteros as it relates to Christ. Although if you grew up in church like I did, or you don't have to grow up in church, you've been in church for a while, you may have heard that Christ is called, I think it's even in some of our hymns, the old hymns, our elder brother, right? Now you get a bonus point if you can tell me the hymn that's in. Nobody? All right, I thought maybe someone would shout it out. Um, Christ, our elder brother. Did someone get it? You're Googling it right now. Um, Christ, our elder brother. There is no biblical reference, but some apply it to Christ from the text in Hebrews 2.17, because at least the brother part is there. Right, where it says in, in the text in Hebrews 2.17, which I didn't write down, so I'll look it up real quickly for you. It talks about Christ's incarnation, being like us in every way. It uses the word brother. It says, therefore he had to be made, that is Christ, like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. So he was made, we are called his brothers in that text. And so out of that grew at least the poetic discussion, and I think even in hymnology, it's in a hymn, I'm, I'm almost sure of it, uh, that Christ is our elder brother. Sure it is. I know it is. That hymn is on the tip of my tongue. Anybody Google that yet? No? Which one was it? Is it in Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee? Christ, our elder brother? You're right. That's it. Give that man an award or an applause. That's it. I was going to give you a Bible or something, but they applauded for you, so give you a great commentary. Um, that's it. Christ, our elder brother. Excellent. Uh, where am I now? D. Thank you. We have three minutes to go. All three of these terms refer to the same office. All three of these terms refer to the same office. The office that Timothy occupied, the office that, that Titus occupied, the office that any number of New Testament pastors, elders, overseers, presbyteros, episcopos, poimen occupied in the church. They're all the same. I'll give you two examples of this. Acts chapter 20. Great text about the concern that Paul had for the leaders of the church saying, protect the flock. A lot of people are going to come in, going to draw people away from the church and away after themselves. Look at this text. I put it on the screen here, verse 17 and 28. Give you the the words we've been getting familiarized with. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called the presbyteros of the church to come to him. Now, no matter what your background, you're thinking, okay, the leaders of the church. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the poimenon, right? That's the, the form of the word poimen, the flock, there's the image of the flock, right? Uh, which the Holy Spirit has made you episkopos, overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Poimen, presbyteros, episkopos, all in the same context. I've called these people together, and I'm commissioning them now to do their job as pastors and overseers to care for the flock. I'll give you another one. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. I exhort the presbyteros among you, the elders, the leaders of the church, as a fellow presbyteros and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, poem in the flock, verbal form of the word, poem in the flock, shepherd the flock, pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising episkopos, oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. eagerly. Presbyteros, poem in, episkopos, all the same. Two levels of leadership in the church. The pastors which you can now rightly and remember and I hope always get every time there's no vicar, rector, high bishop, or any of that. What do you got? You've got poimen, episcopos, presbyteros. They all mean the ultimate administrative overseers of the church. All three terms, same office. That's all you got time for. No conclusion, no landing. We're just 30,000 feet, then we drop to the ground, but we're done. <laughs>